It's 2001, and a man is sitting in the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire hot seat. If you're wrong, you lose. He's looking nervous, mumbling and stumbling, thinking out loud. I don't think it's a gigabit. He's just been asked the question. I don't think it's an animal. A number one, followed by a hundred zeros, is known by what name? I don't think it's Megatron. I'm sure it's Google. I have no idea what the answer is, and it seems like this guy isn't so sure either. But there's a lot more at stake for him. I mean, it's the only chance I'll ever have of winning a million, but it's a hell of a Charles, downside. it's also the only chance you'll ever have of losing £468,000. <laughs> if he gets this answer wrong, he's losing half a million pounds. That's like $700,000 US. No, it's a, it's a Google. Tell me it's a money. Final, Final answer. answer. Final answer. Please don't go for a break. Please do not go for a break. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> You're going to go for a break. <laughs> I'm going for a break. Oh, yes! This was the signature move on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Just as the contestant was about to have their life changed, for better or for worse, the host, Chris Tarrant, would cut to commercials to keep the tension high. Except this was no ordinary cut to the commercials. What Chris Tarrant didn't know is that the man sitting in front of him, the man mumbling and stumbling his way through the answer, was about to pull off what some people think of as the most legendary heist in television history. You never expected a British Army serving major to come on television and try and steal a million pounds. I'm Alzo Slade, and from something else, this is Cheat, the series that tells the stories behind some of the world's biggest scandals and tries to answer the question, is it ever okay to break the rules? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In this episode, we're going back to the early 2000s to find out about an army major accused of trying to steal a million pounds. But this isn't your average high story with fake IDs and people cracking safes and breaking into buildings late at night. This guy wasn't doing any of that. He walked straight into the place, was handed the money, and walked out. In fact, it all took place on television in front of a live audience and with cameras catching every moment. This guy was accused of hustling millions of people. A robbery of Britain's most beloved quiz show. Who wants to be a millionaire? On the very first show, I gave somebody £64,000, which was an unknown amount of money to be given away on television already in those days. This is Chris Tarrant, the longtime host of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Back in the 90s, he was working as a radio DJ when he was approached by a producer with an idea. How about we do a quiz show where the prize is a million pounds? It'd never been done before. At first, Chris wasn't interested. It sounds absurd now because I was very nearly the man who turned down who wants to be a millionaire. Eventually, the producer managed to convince him to do a pilot. It was called Cash Mountain. And I actually remember sitting there thinking, this is quite good. I'm quite, I quite like this. And so he signed up to do the first series. The name of the show had changed. 
that terrible title, Cash Mountain, was out. Who wants to be a millionaire? In. But would it be a success? Bear in mind, only one show had ever gone out anywhere in the world. And the morning after the first show, as I walked up the hill in Wembley, a lorry driver came past me, wound the window down and went, Phone a friend! Phone a friend was one of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire's most famous catchphrases. And it had caught on after only one show. It was a phenomenon. I completely adored Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. I thought it was just the most amazing, simple concept, really. It's a game show. This is James Graham, a playwright and screenwriter. He was so intrigued by the popularity of the millionaire format and this story that he released a TV show about it in 2020. Concept is really, really simple. It goes back to almost the basics of quizzing and question and answers. And if you remember, actually, at the time, in the late 1990s, all modern game shows in Britain and the US and across the world were these reality TV shows, things like Big Brother, where you put people into a house and you torment and psychologically torture them for a month or you drop people out of planes onto desert islands. And here was just a quiz show. It was just, uh, do you know the answer or not? And I remember watching it absolutely baffled. You know, this is a soap opera. This is a drama night after night. You're watching people laying their lives on the line for whatever amount of money they needed. So... This is how the show works. Once you're in the hot seat, you have 15 questions to get to the top prize. And each question corresponds to an amount of money, 100, 200, 3, 5, 1,000, gradually building up to the top prize of a million pounds. At any point, you can choose to take the money you've stacked up. But if you answer incorrectly, you lose everything and you're back to broke. One of the great simple things that's actually done quite a lot now, but I don't think it was ever, ever done before, was where the answer to every question, you know, the key to your next rung of wealth, is there on the screen. This format is cool to me because all of the answers are right there in front of you. Every question is multiple choice, and you choose one of four answers. And you have three lifelines. You can phone a friend, which lets you call anyone you choose and ask them for help. It could be your mom, your cousin, your brother, your sister, your third grade school teacher. Then there's 50-50, where they take away two of the wrong answers. And finally, ask the audience. The audience votes on the right answer. Usually, game show audiences sat behind the camera. But on Millionaire, the audience surrounded the contestant. And they made it almost obnoxiously dramatic with the music. Lighting and suspenseful pauses. It was a very intimidating environment. So you just get two people, the host and the contestant, sat in the middle of this amphitheater where the audience is, is craning over you. It's quite gladiatorial. And actually one of the most exciting things about the design is the lighting. And in the first easier questions, it's this quite um, bright, nice blue. But actually as the questions go on and get harder, most people probably don't realize it, but they get much, much darker. So that by the time you get to the million pound question, it's this really intense black. And then of course you have the music, this gagun, gagun, gagun pulse that's actually vibrating through the floor, through the console where the contestants are sat. So the poor contestants are sat there feeling this pulse as they go on television to try and win or lose huge amounts of money. It's gripping. It's fantastic. And Tarrant was the puppet master, teasing the audience, building the tension, and probing the contestants. And you're actually in control of people's lives. It's not just about people winning, you know, 250000 or a million or whatever. It was often the much smaller sums of money 
but actually just change somebody's life. It was just a thrill. I mean, I loved it. And they were really watching at home. At the show's peak, a third of the UK population was tuning in. A third. That's like 19 million people. And you have to remember, this was pre-streaming, binge-watching. You actually had to wait each week to get your fix. This was appointment television. One family tuning in each week was the Ingrams. Major Charles Ingram and his wife Diana lived in southern England with their three young daughters. Diana was from a family who loved game shows. Her dad appeared on lots of TV game shows when they were younger, and her and her brother were sort of continuing with that tradition, carrying that flame. Her brother actually went on Millionaire and won 32,000 pounds. And Diana? She did the same just a year later. It's like game shows have become a bit of a family business, or maybe more than a bit. Diana Ingram, Charles's wife, had begun writing a book. They had a publisher, and she was writing it with her brother after appearing on the show to give hints and tips about how you get selected, how you use the phone lines and what you do when you get to the studio, what the experience of being on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire is like. They are certainly representative of a kind of person for whom, for a very brief period of time, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire became their complete life. But despite the family's obsession, Diana's husband, Major Charles Ingram, hadn't really caught the millionaire bug. Charles was an army man, trained at Sandhurst, one of the top military schools in England, and he had risen through the ranks to the position of major. Who is a, a very algorithmically cliche military man. He uses lots of military metaphors. There's a bit bumbling. Imagine Mr. Bean in a military uniform. This guy was definitely not quiz show material. In fact, he says he never actually really watched the show. But Diana was adamant. Remember, it's the family business. She told him, Charles, you need to go on. And somehow he got talked into entering millionaire. And I just remember thinking with him, oh, God, this poor bloke, the peer pressure on him from these other two, you know, obviously are really into it and won lots of money. This bloke is not the brightest. This is not the sharpest, you know, sword in the regiment at all. So we thought, if he's got any sense, he'll look at the first question and go, thank you very much, Chris. I've had a very nice time. I'll take four grand and go. But of course he didn't. Not only did the major stick around, he was about to run the board and possibly run one of the most ridiculous cons the British public had ever seen. More on that after the break. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mm -hmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girly? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. 
Uh, who was fastest? Charles Ingram in 3.97. Three, three That's so fast. Great. <laughs> well done, Charles. What about a million pounds? Is Catholic? <laughs> in September of 2001, Major Charles Ingram found himself in that dark tent studio, his wife staring down at him in the audience, cheering him on. 15 questions, three lifelines. He didn't do particularly well that first night. I really haven't got the Scoobies. Now, you've got the audience. You can ask the audience. He used, um, I think, two of his lifelines. He'd ask the audience. Yeah, Chris, I'd like to um, ask the audience, please. OK, audience, let's see if you're used up to phone a friend. Hello. Gerald. Speaking. Hello, it's Chris Tarrant here on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Good evening. He struggled on a question about a soap star, one on the location of a river. Gerald, hi. Um, the river Foyle is found in which part? In the language of the Norman Conqueror. I believe it's French, but it's a bit tricky, this one, because I think they, although they might have... He managed to get up to 4,000 pounds when the horn sounded, marking the end of the episode. It's the right answer. You got 4,000 pounds. OK, Charles has got... God, no. <laughs> oh, God, no. He'd have to return to the yep. studio the next day. Great news, Charles. You're coming back tomorrow. You... But based on the first night, the production team, who had done this so many times before, weren't expecting the major to go much further. So there was a bit of a sense with the major. We thought, oh, he's really struggling. And what we rehearsed was he'll be on for maybe one, two questions more. Then he'll be off. So we rehearsed him walking off. This is Phil Davies, the floor manager that night. It was Phil's job to be the eyes and ears of the director down in the studio. What Phil didn't know is that the major and his quiz-mad family had a plan, one that they were going to put into action overnight, a new approach, so to speak. So when the major arrives back at the studio the next day, he seems like a changed man. He's got eight questions to go until the million. He's still got one lifeline intact. He's got that 50-50. Charles, what's the luck tonight? Let's play Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? I think even he would admit he began playing the game slightly differently. He would, he would talk his answers through. I think it's Switzerland. He had this very unusual style of answering the questions. He would always list all of the answers, A, B, C, and D. It could be France, I suppose. Then again, it could be Italy, so... Um, or maybe it's the Netherlands. And then he would <laughs> list them again, list them again. And sometimes he would select a particular answer. I'm going to go for A1. Yep. Final answer. No. <laughs> <laughs> Are we on the Sorry. main strategy or the sub strategy? Oh, I've rather lost the plot here of your, yeah. of your well, campaign. Slight, slight detour at the moment. Yeah. Okay. It's a lot of money. And then uh, be absolutely committed to that. He would say, I'm going to choose this. It's almost my final answer. And then immediately pivot to a different answer. Now I'll go Craig David. <laughs> yeah. Final answer. I'm going to guess Craig David. I mean, final this was answer. a bold move. To guess is brave enough, but to ignore your gut instinct when you have no clue? was even wilder. You just won 32,000 pounds. Oh. <laughs> How you did that? He was quite a different animal on day two. He seemed much more tense, thinking now. He didn't really know a single answer outright at all, all the way through, all the way through to the end. But it did seem to be working. 
He had used up all his lifelines, but he kept going, fumbling his way through the questions and taking a punt on the answers. When he got to the 500000 mark, which is already a stunning amount of money that most people would have walked away with, he was asked... Baron Hausmann is best known for his planning of which city? Rome, Paris, Berlin, Athens. I think it's Berlin. He wasn't sure of the answer, but he was leaning towards Berlin. I think it's Berlin. <laughs> he was just about to give Berlin as his final answer. I think it's Berlin. Paris. You give me the right answer. It's and then at the last moment, answer. he changed his mind again. I think it is Paris. Yeah, I'm going to play. Yeah, I'm going to play. I'm going to play. I'm going to play Paris. You were convinced it was Berlin. I know. I know. I, I think I was wrong. I'm going to go for Paris. Final answer. Final answer. You had 250,000 pounds, you did not need to play this question. You thought it was Berlin, Berlin, Berlin. You changed your mind to Paris. That brought you 500,000. Yes! The atmosphere was electric. The audience had never seen anything like it. We never had anybody who seemed to know nothing and yet kept playing. And I just thought he was an extraordinarily mad, eccentric, brave guy. Finally, he'd made it to the one million pound question, outdoing his family and the expectations of the crew. His final question was, a number one followed by a hundred zeros is known by what name? I don't think it's a gigabit. He wasn't sure. Would he be bold and go for it once again, risking everything? I mean, it's the only chance I'll ever have of winning a million, but it's a hell of a chance. Charles, downside. it's also the only chance you'll ever have of losing 468,000 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> but let's put that into the... Tarrant tried to remind him how much was at stake here, but he carried on regardless. In the audience, his wife had her head in her hands. She looked worried. I'm going to play Google. Yeah. Final, Final answer. answer. Final answer. Please don't go for a break. Please do not go for a break. <laughs> Please don't. I'm going for a break. <laughs> I'm going for a break. Oh, God. This, this is the show crazy. cut to the commercial break, and Ingram had to wait for the answer that could change his life. The program wasn't recorded live, so what's even more crazy is that at this point, they rehearsed him winning a million pounds, how the check would be handed over, where he'd have to walk, and everything. So, if the answer was wrong now, he'd definitely feel like an idiot. He knew he would lose £468,000 if he was wrong. He then went for Google, mainly because he'd never heard of it, and he'd heard of the other three. At this point, his wife looked sick in the audience. Think about what a difference a million pounds could make in their lives. And her husband has decided to risk it all. Charles, give me that check. 500,000 pounds. <laughs> you no longer have that. You just won one million! Boom! Glitter cannons go off. Sparkles are falling all over him. The Major is crying, hands over his face. His wife is invited down to celebrate with him. 
Chris Tarrant, the presenter, hands him a check for one million pounds and the crowd goes wild. One million pounds. He's only the second person in the program's history to reach a million. This dude, who everyone thought was a bumbling idiot, a bit bland and unlikely to get very far, had played the most daring and exciting game in the show's history. This was what the show was all about, changing the lives of normal people. I have no idea how you got a diet that you were going, you went to hell and back up there. <laughs> Their life would never be the same again. Outside, a limo is waiting to take them to the Langham Hotel in central London. Five stars with all the luxuries. Champagne, a fancy dinner, room service. I'm sure they discuss what to spend the money on. Maybe a holiday, a house, a new car. He told Tarrant that his children were desperate for a pony. They could each have one now. But back at the studios, no one was celebrating. It was just pretty much silence amongst all the technical crew in the studio. We'd never seen anything like it. More on that after the break. Let's rewind back to that winning moment. You just won one minute. And away from the glare of the studio lights, behind the cameras, to where the production crew are watching. On the second night, Phil Davies, the floor manager we heard from earlier, was happy. Everything was running smoothly. But then someone told him there might be a problem. My assistant came up to me and said, Phil, something's not right here. That's when I started to think about it in a different way. She said he keeps getting things right and he, he doesn't know what he's doing and yet he's still getting the, the questions right. Remember that this TV crew knew their program inside out. And this just wasn't playing out like it usually did. It was her who said, we think somebody's coughing. Coughing? <laughs> what was the big deal? People cough in an audience all the time. And if it's too noisy, wouldn't you just remove them? All this talk that was building in the production gallery and so on was saying, yes, we think there's uh, someone in the audience who's coughing. Um, can everyone look out for someone in the audience who's coughing? And I was, I was thinking, no, it's not the audience. I can see the guy. I can see who it is. It's, um, it's this contestant. I could see that it was actually Tequin Whittock. Tequin Whittock was one of the fastest finger contestants. These are the contestants who sit around the edge of the millionaire arena. They're next in line for the hot seat when the major's turn is finished. He was a middle-aged white man, mousy hair, glasses, sat a few meters away in the seats behind the major. And Phil could see him coughing at weird intervals. He thinks something isn't right here. So Phil starts to watch him. It was controlled and it was systematic. And he hadn't had a cough all day. And the coughing only happened when the major was trying to answer the questions. The crew wanted to pause production, but they couldn't stop the whole show and keep this guy from winning life-changing amounts of money just because things seemed a bit off. We had to keep going, and, and the crew were really deflated. It was a horrible feeling. It was a horrible atmosphere because we knew we, we had to keep recording, doing what we had to do, and that was counterpointed by the fact that Tarrant kept going because he didn't know anything was wrong. Chris Tarrant didn't wear an earpiece. So even if they'd want to let him know, they couldn't have. The show carried on, all the way to the million-pound win. I went home, quite happy, 
chatting to my driver all the way home, you know, million pound winner, amazing bloke, weird bloke, but, you know, got the money and all that. So I was, I was excited. I didn't pick up on one guy coughing in the... I would never have spotted it. I'm just focused on the major and, you know, what the hell he's doing next. That night, as the Ingrams sipped champagne and spent their first and maybe only night as millionaires, the production crew poured over the tapes trying to find out what happened. What was it about this win that just didn't feel right? They played back everything, trying to figure it out. And there it was. On each question, as the major read through the answers on his screen, I think it is Paris. a cough will sure come from just cool. behind the major's oh, head. Oh. Yeah. yeah, I'm gonna play. Loud and clear, always on the right answer. And the person coughing each time was Tequin Whittock. But it wasn't just Tequin. On one of the answers, it seemed like the major's wife actually tried to correct Tequin's wrong answer with a cough of her own. It was like watching a cheater's quarrel in real time. It's a bit tricky, this one. Could one of the most exciting, daring, and unexpected winners on Millionaire have actually been pulling off an epic cheat and using his wife to help him do it? A few days later, the celebration was cut short when Charles Ingram received a phone call to tell him that, due to irregularities on the tape, the show was being referred to the police. The broadcast was canceled and their check for one million pounds torn up. Charles, Diana, and Tequin were all charged with conspiracy to commit fraud. They became household names, hounded in the streets. He wasn't known as Charles Ingram anymore. The papers and the public called him the coughing major. <coughs> the court case became almost an extension of the show, a spin-off drama with some of the same characters, like host Chris Tarrant, who went from celebrating with the major to jilted lover, hoodwinked by his bumbling, stumbling act. I answered something to one of the, one of the barristers. Yes, in my opinion, that's probably, you know, what would happen in, or something. The judge leaned over and went, Oh, Mr. Tarrant. Is that your final answer? <laughs> and then when he went to um, five to one, yeah, we should adjourn now until two o'clock. Um, come back at two o'clock. Or as you would say, Mr. Tarrant, <laughs> we'll take a break. <laughs> so I found the whole thing bizarre. You know, it's, if you imagine court cases normally are presenting evidence of, you know, CCTV of a crime, a robbery, a burglary, DNA evidence of fingerprints on weapons. This is a very strange case because they're showing clips from a game show, which is meant to be fun and light entertainment. But at the heart of it is a very serious crime. Yes, a serious crime is basically a one million pound heist. And at the center of it was all of these coughs. The prosecution needed the coughs to make their case. And so they played a tape from the night in question. It was the first time anyone outside the producers and Chris Tarrant had actually watched the footage from that night. The tape, which is known as Tape G, showed that there were 192 calls recorded in the studio that night, and that 19 of these were deemed significant. I don't even know what a significant cough sounds like, but I know all of this sounds ridiculous, that a tape of a cough would be presented in court. One particular cough the prosecution said was disguising the word no had everyone in the gallery laughing. It was like a farce because it was a trial all about coughing and all people were talking about for eight, nine hours a day was what makes people cough. 
there was a bizarre moment when actually a coughing fit broke out in the jury. <laughs> And it became so uncontrollable and aggressive that the judge had to actually suspend the sitting for the day um, because they just had to leave. Everyone was coughing. It, 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 I think it even got through to the press gallery and, and, and witnesses just began this uncontrollable cough. At this point, the whole thing is like a circus. But in some ways, it helped the defense's case because if you start paying attention to people coughing, guess what you're going to hear? coughing. Another case for the defense was, of course, that the person accused of coughing as hints about what over the over the right answer actually did have an asthmatic condition. Tequin Wittick does have a, an uncontrollable cough. And that was diagnosed, understand by, by, I'm afraid I don't know the technical terms, a, a coughing doctor. That coughing doctor was Alan Morris, a professor of respiratory medicine at Hull University and head of the European Respiratory Task Force on chronic coughing. I didn't even know they had such a thing, but it sounds like they got the right guy on the stand, and he explained that Tequin had perennial rhinitis, a dust allergy, seasonal hay fever, and asthma, all of which would cause chronic coughing. But if the major wasn't responding to coughing signals, why was his gameplay so erratic and unpredictable? He was playing, his argument was, as entertainingly as he could, because there was a theory amongst the community of who wants to be millionaire fans that the more entertaining that you were, the easier questions the producers might give you in the chair to try and keep you going for as long as possible. All right, I can kind of see where the major's coming from with the producers holding out for entertainment. But there was one other piece of incriminating evidence where it kind of feels like a classic heist. It was the phone calls. Charles and Diana claimed to never have met Tequin and only saw him for the first time in court. But even though they hadn't met him in person, 38 phone calls had taken place between them, including two the night before and two on the day of the recording. The Ingrams claimed that Diana was just providing Tequin, another superfan, with tips for the show and wishing him luck. But 38 calls? For real? That seems like a lot of luck to me. And after weeks of this, Major Charles Ingram, Diana Ingram, and Tequin Wittuk were all found guilty of trying to win money by deception. They were given suspended sentences of up to 18 months, which means no prison. But their reputations were destroyed. The next day, the Army called Major Charles and said he had to step down or they would fire him. Charles Ingram, the major who cheated his way to a million, humiliated his life in ruins. That was all nearly 20 years ago now, and the coughing major remains a household name in Britain. The majority of people thought justice had been served. That's what you want to hear, right? You know, that the cheats didn't get away with it this time, that they'd been caught breaking the rules. But as we all know, over time, stories have a tendency to change. And in this case, theories have circulated that this story wasn't as straightforward as it seemed two decades ago. I think the real joy of this story for me is that myself, like almost everybody in Great Britain, when they were watching this scandal, were absolutely convinced of his guilt. Here's James Graham, the playwright again. After a few years, he looked into the story again and he started to think to himself. 
I feel like it's so easy to to accept a certain narrative because partly because it's more entertaining to accept it. We enjoy these cheating stories. We enjoy the idea of this well-to-do English couple who tried to beat the system and got caught and got punished for doing it. There's something satisfying in that narrative. But what if they weren't guilty at all? That's what James started to think. He began researching around and even talking to Charles. I also think one of the myths around this story is that Charles Ingram is an idiot. In fact, he took an IQ test and was accepted into Mensa, the society for really smart people with high IQs. But I think it is way, way, way more complicated. There are so many things that don't quite stack up. That's why James wrote a play and then a TV series. The play was called Quiz, and it tried to show that maybe Major Charles wasn't as guilty as everyone thought he was. For example, take their accomplice, Tequin. And actually also Tequin Wittick, the guy who allegedly knew all the answers to these questions and coughed on all the right answers, he then went in the chair to play the game, and he only made it to £1,000. Tequin had a history of going on other game shows and basically bombing. He's not the kind of guy you'd want on the team. And it wasn't just that. And it's a little strange that the only evidence they really had was the tape of the show. And this tape had been edited by the producers, the very people the major had been accused of stealing a million pounds from. So the evidence is sort of tainted. We actually don't have a really clean summary of what went on in that studio. The Ingrams have always maintained their innocence and say that they're going to appeal again even 20 years after. We reached out to Charles Ingram hoping to speak with him, but he said that he didn't have any interest in conducting interviews before the appeal and may not even speak to the press afterwards. We asked Chris Tarrant what he thought of the story resurfacing 20 years later. I don't have any malice towards the major. Actually, I don't at all. I've never met him since. I think the more... He, they protest their innocence, the more I find it hard to like them. You know, why don't they just go, yeah, okay, we gave it a try and we got caught. I think people would respect them more for that because they are still, in most people's eyes still, they're a bunch of crooks. You know, I have no doubt at all in my own mind and any of us involved in the programme, they were completely guilty and there is no other verdict. This was a competition on television that didn't require superb athletic ability. This was a game show that provided a chance at fame and fortune for regular folks who are decent at trivia games you'd play at home or in a bar. The lights, the suspense, and of course, the money, all of that created a subculture of obsessed fans, which makes fertile ground for cheats. Now, whether they were guilty or innocent, there's still something kind of pitiful about ruining your life over a game show. I think the story of what's happened to the Ingrams is is reasonably tragic, whether they did it or, or not. Deep inside us, we all worry that we're only a couple of steps away from being a bit weird as well, from falling down a rabbit hole of, of obsessiveness, whether that's about a TV program or a sport or an artist of celebrity. And, and you know, there but for the grace of God, that's not happened to, to me yet, and it's not happened to you, but it maybe happened to some of these people who played who wants to be a millionaire for whatever reason. And I, I don't know, I have great sympathy for those kinds of characters. I find it very hard to judge and persecute them. 
Hey folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it, and please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show, and we want more listeners. Cheat is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. The producer for this episode is Hannah Newton. The series editor is Joe Sykes. The original idea for this show was developed by Tom Fuller. Engineering, sound design, and scoring by Martin Peralta. Our design and visual team is Emma Lansdowne and Sarah De La Rue. Special thanks to Steve Ackerman, Mark Rivers, Peggy Sutton, Lizzie Jacobs, and Ella McLeod.